countdown, Kalen. We're going to get it lined up with the clock this this week. Okay, a couple of housekeeping things. This is the third and final week for October, okay? Remember, the first three Wednesdays of every month, and so this is the third and final week, so we will not be meeting until the first Wednesday of November. So when is that going to be? Two weeks from now? One week? I, I, it's three, three weeks from now. Wow, that seems like a long time. So anyway, uh, it is going to be a little bit of time uh, till I see you all again. So don't anybody show up next Wednesday. And it's always from 7 to 8. Uh, I just had it pointed out to me that the calendar indicates 6 p.m. next month. So I don't know what's going on there, but it's always 7, 7 to 8. So the calendar is wrong. Okay, so let's see here. Okay, and then also too, so I don't forget, we've been teaching on this subject, uh, concepts of the da- of David's tabernacle now. I believe this is the sixth week. And uh, I have to tell you that honestly, there I we presented a lot of information. How many of y'all have attended all six weeks? Would you confirm that there's been a lot of information presented? There's a lot of lessons to learn through, through, through what was presented. And, and I would invite you, every one of them are on, will be on the website. All five of them, the five previous ones are already there, right, Kalen? Okay. They're in a, they're in a, um, an iPod or what do they call it? Podcast format or MP3 and you can download them for free. They're there. You can go click on them and listen now. I invite you to do that, <clears throat> but here's the thing. There's nothing proprietary here. The Holy Spirit's the teacher. The Word of God is the subject matter, and I'm just a vessel. And so, so yes, I've applied myself. Yes, I've, I've poured myself into some n- notes here that are in outline format that I teach from, and guess what? I'm going to make them available to people that want them. And so people, I would invite uh, folks that if you're interested in, in, in going further into personal study in this, because we did cover a lot of ground uh, over the past six weeks, um, I want to make these notes available to you. I have eight pages of them. They're in outline format, and you can follow along with the MP3, the recorded messages, and really dive deeper into this. Why am I saying this? I truly believe the Holy Spirit led me in this because this is about what God's order is concerning handling, hosting, uh, moving, inviting, entertaining, ministering under the anointing in His presence. And we want that more, right? We don't want any abatements to the anointing or the glory of God in our midst. But there are some folks. And if you'll go back, for those that were not here over the the previous lessons, we covered a lot of ground leading up to what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is the actual tabernacle of David. And yes, we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, And I've got to tell you that there is so much here that if we will apply the lessons that we have learned we will experience a greater presence. We will host a greater presence of the living God. We will experience a greater and stronger flow of the anointing. And it's the anointing that breaks the yoke, folks, and moves the burdens. It's not someone that of glib tongue or someone that can, can uh, you know, speak in the wise words of man's wisdom. It's the power and demonstration of the Spirit that matters. Amen. And that is the whole, that's the presence of the living God in our midst. That is the anointing that I'm talking about. And it breaks the yokes. It moves the burdens. And that's what we want. Hallelujah. And so that's why we've talked about this. And you're going to, we're going to bring it to a head tonight. Uh, in so many ways. Hallelujah. Okay. And so don't, let me, I'm going to throw these notes aside. Okay, so let's get started. Father, thank you so much. We're always thankful first before anything. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be called your sons, your daughters, your children, oh God. We thank you for Jesus who created the way for that to happen. And we thank you for the the fact that Jesus is the living word 
And he is the bread of life. He's the light of the life of man. And he came down and broke himself for us to be able to partake of him and the life in his nature. And the word is Jesus. Hallelujah. That's what he is. That's what John 1 tells us. And we're just thankful for the bread we're going to receive tonight. Holy Spirit, I yield unto you. You're the teacher. I ask, Holy Spirit, you would be, you would flow unabated through this vessel to these that would listen, Father, and desire to hear the word of the living God. Thank you for eyes to see, for ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, and we thank you, Father, that there is nothing that can hinder the anointing tonight. In the name of Jesus, we just declare this atmosphere preserved, hallelujah, and secure by the Almighty Spirit of God in the Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> you'll recall last week, does everybody have your seatbelts on? Because we're going to go a, lot, a long ways tonight. And uh, it's going to be awesome. I think people are, I think you're just going to sit there and be like, wow, man, this is so amazing. What God is going to reveal here and what he has set forth in his word uh, uh, for us to partake of tonight. But you'll recall that we left off talking about the final steps of David and the, the, the nation bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, right? Remember we talked about that? He, he, he went down. He had the right heart. He took down some young men, 30,000 plus to go down and get it the first time. And he did it wrongly. It didn't matter the fact that his, that his heart was right. It didn't matter that he had the right inspiration, the right desire, the right focus. He did not obey the right method, the right things that God had ordered in terms of handling the anointing, the presence of God that was represented in the ark. And as a result, we saw, um, you know, a, a, a tragedy take place. It checked David's heart. He became fearful of God at that point in time, which is not a, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to be consumed. It's a, it's a reverential worship and respect of God above all things. That's the fear of God. Such that you don't want to displease him. Such that you want to obey everything that he's ordered for you to do. It, because it's not because he gets pleasure out of us. Oh, look, they, they're like, you know, they did it. They're like robots. They did exactly what I inspired and commanded them to do. And I take great pleasure in that. You know, I, it, that's not it at all. It's because there are spiritual laws God knows about that we don't know about. And he's trying to protect us and trying to create the avenue and the manner by which we can approach him and why, which we can host his presence. It's not that he gets a big kick out of coming with all these rules and ordinances and then having everybody, oh, look, he, he obeyed perfectly. I will bless him. He obeyed perfectly. I will bless her. No, it's not that at all. It's the fact that he's doing everything he can to mediate the way of us back into him. And, of course, this was pre-Jesus, so uh, especially at that time. They needed to be, they needed to follow what they told them because they didn't have the manifestation of the grace of Jesus at that point in time. Okay, so they were bringing the ark back in. They were doing it right this time. They made it all the way. And remember, they were taking six steps and they would make the sacrifice. Six steps and the sacrifice. Six steps and the sacrifice. The priests are carrying the ark on their shoulders, on the poles, the way the law prescribed. They're coming in and David, the king of Israel, the absolute highest authority, dressed as both a king and a priest... He wore a linen ephod, it said. Well, he shucked that thing as they came into the city and got down to his his hands. No, that's exactly what the word says. He got down basically to his undergarments. Things that that most certainly kings would not walk around in procession before public display. And how can I say that? Because we're going to see we're going to see where we left off here. Because we're going to pick up with the story of Michael, his wife. And so, just imagine now: here, King David is coming in with, uh, and he's leading the procession. And we have the order of the Levitical priesthood right down to the the Kohathites, which are the right clan of the tribe of Levite, carrying the ark. Because it wasn't just any Levites that could carry it; it was only one clan of the tribe that could. We got the right boys carrying it this time. They're bringing the ark in. They've made, they've done their six step sacrifice, six step sacrifice. They've got the blood trail of the sanctification of their history. 
behind them in the process, which represents the blood of Christ covering our steps. Hallelujah. In the new covenant. And here they come and they're coming into Jerusalem. And what does Jerusalem mean? It means really the city. It's like the city of peace. You know, here we're seeing the, 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 the true prince of peace being restored upon his rightful throne. Upon it in his rightful context. Because the ark really represents Jesus. We're going to learn a little bit about that tonight. Potentially. We'll have to see how much time we have. And so here they come in. David is dancing, it says, before the Lord. He is worshiping the Lord. Hello, Mike. And he's just going nuts. I mean, the guy is beside himself. Not, not from a fleshly perspective, but from a perspective of a soul that is sold out to one thing, and that is to see the restoration of Israel's hope and promise and foundation of covenant to bring her back into a place of rightful rulership in the nations, among the nations again. And here he comes in. Well, now let's pick up the story where we left off. So David and the whole of Israel bring the ark into the city. And as they're coming in, then we see the scene switch to David's wife. Her name is Michael. It was Saul's uh, daughter. And so Saul's daughter, Michael, it says, is looking down from a window. Oh, there's a lot of lessons we could preach for an hour just about this right here tonight. Can't, I've got to be careful not to spend too much time on this. There's a lot of lessons in this. And Michael's looking down from the window, and what does a window represent? Just stop and think for just a little bit. What does a window represent? It represents a place of looking, of viewing, of observation. It represents a position of judgment, if you want to get right down to it. Because you're looking out upon what's going on. And people that look out upon what's going on and aren't a participant will judge what's happening, potentially. That's exactly what Michael does. It's a point of observation. It represents a place of observation, i.e., it's a spectator. The thing about the kingdom of God is it ain't a spectator sport. Nothing about the kingdom of God anoints, gifts, and calls every single one of us to sit in a window and watch what's going on. Amen? And so here Michael is. She's up there, you know, she's watching. She didn't go. So what does that tell you? That tells you she was not with the the, the party of, of the, really the whole of the nation who was bringing back the presence of God to the, into their midst. She stayed behind. So that meant that that tells you something about her heart. Because we know that she was not uninformed. She was the king's wife, for crying out loud. She knew where David went. David told her. You know it it, it had to happen. So she made a choice to not go. What does that say? Oh, my goodness, it speaks volumes. God wants participants, not spectators, in his kingdom. Spectators observe, they judge, they criticize, and in so doing, separate themselves from others. And, you know, I can give many examples about spectators. How about people, how many of you all are parents? How many of you all have ever had people in your life, friends, and probably really good friends that never had children, but they could tell you everything there was to know about parenting children? Amen? Do you want to know about that? People, you know, that have never raised a child in their whole life, but boy, they can write the book about parenting. Until they have a child, and then theirs is often the worst spoiled brat in the whole church or the whole family. No, I've seen it happen. I think some of you all can probably attest to that. Isn't it interesting? Well, what happened between the time of your supreme wisdom to the time of its application? Well, you may not have had wisdom, is what I would say. Well, it's exactly the same kind of thing. It's easy to sit up in the window and to look out over what's going on and make a lot of judgments and, and wisecracks about what things are happening and, and pass a lot of commentary. And it's like I've said before, opinions are not are, are common to all men, just like armpits. Everybody has them, and they sometimes stink. Amen? 
And I'll take it a step further. A lot of times people are airing their opinions and I don't think they've been asked to, to sniff their armpit. I don't know about you, but a lot of times people come up telling me their opinions. I just tell them, I like to tell them, you know, hey, you know, opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them and they sometimes stink. And I don't remember asking you to sniff yours. Well, anyway. Oh, my goodness. Help me, Lord. Legends in their own mind. That's spectator. That's Michael. Legend in her own mind. She didn't even see the ark, folks. She totally missed the relevance and significance of the celebration. She completely missed the point. The return of the living God's presence in among the people. That's what was being represented here. That's what was taking place. She completely missed that. Michael confronts David when he returns from instilling the ark in the tabernacle. They just had basically what amounts to really a covenant meal together even. It was almost like Passover, almost kind of like the Lord's Supper to a degree. David hands out cakes of raisins and and this kind of stuff to all the people. They end up, you know, having basically just a covenant meal after they reestablish the presence of God in, in, in a place that he had ordered through David's heart. He comes back from that and Michael confronts him. And, and she cuts him down for his quote unquote undignified behavior. David tells her, and, 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 and I, you just gotta love David's response. Because he tells her, woman, if you think I was celebrating then, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now that's the Greg version. I know a lot of people know King James and stuff, but I give you Greg version a lot of times because to me it has a lot more meaning to it. And that's exactly what he tells her. And then the sad reality is he goes on to cut her off at that point in time. And actually she cuts herself off. And here's the lesson, and there's so many lessons here, but here's a really principal lesson in this story. We need to be careful regarding our criticality of people's worship over what they are doing to see the presence of God increase and restored in their life and applied. You can cut yourself off from the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God by by sitting in the window observing what's going on and passing judgment. You don't know what their praise, praise cost them. You don't know the long line of blood that follows behind the trail of their, of their procession to, to restoration of the presence of God. You know, and I, I brought up, you know, Luke 747, those that are forgiven much, love much. Those that are forgiven little, love little. There's a lot that, that really to me in the New Testament right there, that speaks to what we're talking about here. So when she cut him down, she cut herself off. Her attitude, last point, dictated her outcome. I've said this to my son many, many times. You know, Judah, he's not quite old enough to understand this concept, but Josiah is. And I tell him, son, attitude equal outcome. Attitude equals outcome. And her attitude was one that did not see the significance of what, of what was, was happening. And most importantly, did not see, did not follow the authority of even her own husband and the king of Israel in the, who was leading the process of what was going on. Not just haphazardly obey or haphazardly participating, but leading the process. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of lessons there. Help me, Holy Ghost. I'm going to move on. I want to preach on that for about the next 45 minutes, but I just can't do it. First Chronicles 16 now. David puts the ark into a tent. And we refer to this in, in uh, pro- uh, prophets and scripture refer to this as David's tabernacle. And so hang on to your, hang on to your hats here. We're going to roll through some things. David appoints various Levites, okay, to minister continually before the ark. Some of them were musicians, and it says the type of instruments they use. They use lyres, they use harps, they use cymbals, they use trumpets that I've pointed out before, all of which are instruments that have a particular and piercing voice. A trumpet has a piercing voice. A cymbal has a piercing voice and frequencies. None of these are quiet, omber, reverential-type instruments. 
I know that a lot of issue has been made sometimes about the volume in this church, about, you know, guitars and drums and different things like that. I'm going to tell you when we get to heaven, there are going to be a lot of people with their mouth on the ground for a good long while because of the, of the energy that is going on. And you don't believe me, you go to Revelation and look about pictures of what's going on around God's throne. My goodness. My goodness. 24-7. The energy, the power, the things that are going on around God's throne. Things that are being spoken, things that are being sung that, that the Apostle John and Paul both, because he had a vision of some things too that said, I, we can't utter them here. I can't bring, uh, I can't bring, I'm not fit to bring the utterance of those things here in this tent. Okay, so, and there's some, there, so in addition to the musicians, he appoints some singers. And, and, and I gotta, I'm gonna reemphasize the fact, the absolute fact that it wasn't just haphazard folks. David turned to, he first of all found the leaders of the Levitical tribes and the clans and the people that were supposed to do the, these are the people that are anointed that God put within them the ability to do these things, to play the harp, to play the lyre, to play the trumpet, to play the cymbals. And then also singers, people that were anointed to sing. And then he found the guy, the guy, uh, whatever his name was, it begins with C-H. <laughs> And it says he was skilled in music, and he put him as the leader of the whole deal. He was the maestro, if you will. He was the person that was probably taking the tryouts and saying, all right, boys, you're supposed to be able to do the trumpet. You're supposed to be, come up here and let me make sure that you have the skill to do them. And then apply those people in their rightful place. Apply the gifts, apply the skills, apply the abilities in their rightful place. It wasn't just haphazard. It wasn't just people that wanted to do it. It was the people that were anointed to do it. that were put in the place for ministry of music, whether it be with instrument or the voice. And then it says there were people that were appointed as guardians, as gatekeepers, as people that watched the door, so to speak, to, to protect the environment. We need all of these today, folks, all of them. Just like they had back then, and it was multiplicit. There was many, 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 many people that were used in this process. And, and, and we need, we need everyone giftings applied to the place they're supposed to be and ordained to be applied to. Amen? And we need people that don't have giftings in areas to get the heck out of those areas and get to the place that their giftings are supposed to be rightfully applied to. Amen? Because you're occupying a place that is inhibiting the anointing. If you're not called and gifted into a certain area, but you continue to want to occupy a place there then you are inhibiting the anointing that someone that God has in someone to bring through someone else to make the rightful supply there. That's as, that's as simple as I can state it. My God, I don't want to be in someone else's place. I don't want to be making a supply or, or saying I've got gifts I don't have. Because guess what? There won't be no anointing there. Okay. Second point about David's tabernacle is that it, the format of the tabernacle was an open format. It was no longer a closed behind curtain format like Mosaic tabernacle was, where only one person could go before the most holy place one time a year, and that only after they had applied themselves to an unbelievable amount of ceremonial sanctification. And so uh, now David's tabernacle is one of open format where anyone can perceive the, the, the presence of the living God, where anyone can watch what's going on. It's not just one person that's ordained to have that experience one time a year now. And to me, this is a prophetic symbolism of the way things would be in today's New Testament church. The presence of God was no longer hidden behind closed doors, behind the veil of the Holy of Holies, but now the manifest presence of God was available to all people who would believe and approach it. That's, that's not my words. That's what the Word of God says about, we're talking about the, the tabernacle of David. The third point, worship. Worship. I'll say it again. Worship, not religious practice became the focus of activity in that in that tabernacle. 
The sacrifice was that of worship and not animals. You know, and the thing is, the, ta- the mosaic tabernacle, the, the, the fullness of activity and ministry before the Lord was animal sacrifice. Was all through animal sacrifice and was just replete with animal sacrifice from start to finish. Right up until the, the day of atonement even. Whenever the, the, the high priest that was anointed that year to go in and would sanctify himself and be able to go in one time a year before the minister before the presence of the Lord and shake that blood upon the mercy seat. Again, sacrifice. It's all animal sacrifice. Now that is gone. Guess what the sacrifice is now? Praise and worship 24 seven. Man, folks, this is such a strong prophetic picture of today's church. Of what God desires and is called for. But isn't it interesting? David was such an honorable man. David was such an obedient person that he still had some priests fulfilling sacrifices of the law at the Mosaic temple back in Gibeah. Even while he was instituting and had even the fact that the glory of the presence of God wasn't even in there anymore. It was with him in the new order. The order of worship. But yet David still said, now y'all boys, some of y'all, you older folks that you've ministered before the Lord, you know what you're supposed to do. You continue offering the sacraments for sin. You continue offering the sacraments, the fellowship offerings, the things. You continue that ministry as you know to do while we transition to this. He had him doing that. I think that's an interesting point to see in this. David was complete in his desire to be obedient despite ushering in a new era, a new concept and sacrifice before the presence of the Lord, which is worship. He was still maintaining what he knew to do. Folks, I think there's a lot of lesson to learn in the fact that you need to always remember to walk in the light that you have. I know we need to be looking for for the light to come and what God brings in the way of revelation and 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 forecast for where we're headed, but at the same time, walk in the light that you know and that you have. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It's both a light for where you're at and a light to show you where you're going. That's what that scripture means to me. So people, the fourth point, people ministered before the presence of the Lord. We're talking about David Tabernacle now. We've got the presence of the Lord reestablished now in a new order. And it's an order of, of the sacrifice of worship and praise, no longer of animal sacrifice. People ministered, the fourth point, people ministered before the presence of the Lord continually. They sang as they approached the presence. And the anointing came upon them as they approached the presence to sing. And many of the Psalms, folks, I think a lot of us have no understanding or concept of where the Psalms really come from or what they represent. But we're going to learn tonight a little bit about them. The Psalms, the majority of the Psalms actually came as a result of ministry before the Lord's presence in worship and praise and then the recording of that ministry. And then we have, guess what? A song of Asaph. A song of David, a song of Korah, a song of this, a song of that. Guess guess what? Those are all priests that are iterated and listed in Chronicles. People that ministered and sang before the presence of the Lord. And in verse 4 there in uh, 1 Chronicles 16, you'll see that in particularly one translation of King James, it talks about having people that would actually record what was being sung and ministered before the presence of the Lord. Well, that's where the, a lot of the Psalms came from. So here's the deal about Psalms, folks. Psalms are really songs, if you did not know this. And if you look at the Hebrew word and even the Greek word for Psalms, it talks about them in a connotation of singing, not recitation, of singing. Because guess what? They were songs that were sung under prophetic anointings that would come upon them as men would approach the presence of God, fall under that anointing, and begin singing these songs out before the presence of the living God in the ark there in David's tabernacle. 
So here's the deal about Psalms. They are meant to be sung, not just recited. And I would invite you guys, I would invite everyone to begin a, a process. If you have not done this, I used, I've done this a lot in my past. It's not been, the, it's going to become a more now, uh, you know, stirring all things up to a way, to our remembrance. You know, I'm going to begin picking this back up again, but I used to sing the Psalms out. Just open them up and start singing them out. And you don't have to carry a tune. Really singing is not just about the tune. It's about the tune. It's not about the tune of your voice. It's about the tune of your heart. It's about the frequency of your spirit ministering unto God. So you would, so picture this folks, you know, here we have an open format of the tabernacle of David. We have the Ark of the Covenant, which is representative of and is the physical presence or the physical seat of the presence of the living God among the people. And people would come in that were anointed. People would come in that were called. And they would come in, and as they would approach the throne of God with utter fear in their heart, but with a respect and desire to minister as as God had ordered David to do before the presence of the living God, day in, day out, to play. You have people that are playing uh, instruments. And then you have people that are singing. And you know, I read something that was so inspiring to me. You know that little thing in Psalm where it says Selah or Selah, however you want to say it. You know, pause and think of that. If you look in the margin, a lot of times it's rendered pause and think of that. That's what that means to pause. Do you know what, what a lot of scholars believe actually that represented? That was more a scripting in music term that meant all singing stop. And the musicians emphasize from a musical position what had just been recited or sung out. And you can hear this happen in music and it brings a wonderful drama to what's taking place for artistry or artistically. When you, if you've ever gone and watched opera and you'll see, you know, they're going through an aria. Well, then all of a sudden in certain parts they'll stop and then the music will just pick up with this energy and just be, it's just like backing up and creating the foundation for what's about to be brought forth in the next verse. Y'all know what I'm saying? They said that's what Selah really meant. It was a musical term. And so literally you've got the harps and the lyres and the, and the, t- the timbrels and the different instruments that are there. The anointed hands and the hearts that are playing those things. And it was wonderfully orchestrated because as the anoint, as people would move in to sing before the presence of the living God and the anointing would come on them to do that, they would come to the place to where it was time to stop and then allow the the voice of the instrumentality to reemphasize and to create another context for the next verses that would come forth under that inspiration. Selah. Selah. Hallelujah. It's time to have some Selah moments in our midst, folks. Hallelujah. In other words, sometimes we just need to shut up and allow allow what's just been spoken to sink in, folks. Allow God to speak in other voices. Man, we don't understand this. So you would walk in, the ark was there. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't handle it. But you would approach and begin singing as the anointing came upon you to do so. And then what would happen is, is that that people would be singing and then literally people would be scribing. They would be recording what was being sung. And again, the Psalms are a compilation of many things that were sung under the anointing of the presence of God. Do you think they've lost their potency? Well, they, they, they're only as potent as your heart's faith application to the, to, to believing them and to speaking them out from a position of faith and not just speaking them, but I invite you to open up the Psalms and start singing them, folks, as your spirit gives you voice to do so. Hallelujah. Sing these Psalms because in, in la- allow the Holy Ghost to take you, take you to a place you've never been before. Trust Him. <clears throat> Sing what comes out of your spirit. And start with the Psalms. They're inspired songs. And here's something that's just going to... I mean, if it don't make you want to stand up and jump around, 
David learned. How many of y'all remember, what is it, the, the, uh, is it the 91st Psalm? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. How many of y'all ever heard that before? How many of y'all ever sang the song after that? Now it's rolling through my mind now. It's a wonderful song. That's a psalm. Hey, sing that song. Man, that's a good one. David learned to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. He learned to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. How many of y'all ever wondered, what's the shadow of the Almighty? Well, isn't it interesting to stop and think that the, the, the tabernacle of David is an open format tabernacle that was many times open to the, to the reception of the sun's light into it. And as the sun's light would come into it, what does the sun do whenever it shines upon an object? It casts a shadow back behind it. It casts a shadow back behind it. And so literally, you could not touch the mercy seat on the, on the ark, or you would be consumed. Uzzah can speak from that, for that perspective. You could not touch the ark, except for when it was time to move the ark, and it wasn't time to move the ark ever again when it was instilled there, at that, at this point in time anyway. And it was only certain Le- Levites again that could do it. Okay. Picture this. Continual praise, continual worship, being the atmosphere of the presence of God as a matter of sacrifice. No longer animal sacrifice, but the, the praise and the worship from the lips of men. And this, and the, the instruments that are coming from the lips of men being blown, being hand, you know, hand uh, delivered at those frequencies, creating this habitation. But picture this. In the morning, the daylight comes and it dawns and the light shines into the tabernacle. And the light shines upon the ark, representing the manifest presence of the living God there. And those cherubim that whose wings come together and touch and form that area called the mercy seat, which is the absolute nucleus of where the presence of God would be physically. It would shine, it, it would cast a shadow of those cherubim on the ground back behind the ark. And David's heart was such that he could not, even though his heart so desired, to go and embrace that art, that mercy seat physically. He could not do it. So the closest he could come was to go and get into the shadow of that mercy seat. Do you all see that? Oh my goodness, it breaks my heart to think about it. I mean, David's heart desired to touch the living God, but yet he could not physically do it. He knew he could not do it, but he could come doggone close to it. And guess what? It was at least from his perspective to get into the shadow of what was cast from the mercy seat was a perspective that David's, I think that David had that no one else had. He that dwells in the secret place shall abide in the shadow. And I guarantee you, David spent hours in that shadow, man. I know because his Psalms would talk about, there's only one thing I desire, oh God, that I would be a pillar in your presence. He just wants to be an object that never gets moved from the presence of the living God. That's, that was David's heart. And, and his heart was to be as close as he could be to God and as close as he could get because he was unregenerate of spirit was to get into the shadow. Man, I'll tell you, there's a, there's, that's a powerful thing, but I gotta tell you here today, the shadow is no, is, is an old covenant thing because now the living light and the anointing of the living God is in this ark that we have this treasure in earthen vessels in the new covenant. Hallelujah. Praise God. And guess what? The light of the living God is inside of us doing what? Going forth and casting the shadow for people to come into the the saving knowledge for them to then become a dispensation of that light. I don't even understand why this said to some degree. Hallelujah. But the Holy Ghost will deliver it. So you could get into the shadow, and the shadow was an exact image of the mercy seat where the presence of the Lord, of the living God, was seated. And you could get into there because you weren't physically touching the ark, but he could get into that shadow. 
So the tabernacle of David was a place of 24-7 continual worship, continual praise, instrumentation, vocals, the recording of the things that were coming, that were being spoken forth, all being taken, taken place in an orchestrated and ordered manner by the anointing of God as men would come before the presence of the living God. It was a place of the shadow of the Almighty. Here's something to realize about the sixth point. That the ark never returned to its former place. Once it was removed from the tabernacle of Moses, it never, it never went back ever, 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 ever again. Man, there's a lot of prophetic symbolism in that. And what was the, and there was actually a child named for the glory departed because that's exactly what it represented when the ark of the Lord was removed. And if you go back and read that story about Eli, whenever the news came to him, he didn't fall over at the news of his sons dying. He fell over at the news of the ark being captured by the enemy of God. You go back and read it. His sons have been killed, but I guarantee Eli did uh, that impacted him. But what really impacted him, caused him to roll over backwards, was when he was told that the ark had been captured by the enemy. Anyway, when that ark left the Mosaic Tabernacle, it never came, never went back. That's a prophetic symbolism of the glory leaving the old covenant and moving into the new. The establishment of the new covenant and new order of, of, of the tabernacle of God among us in our members with worship being the sacrifice that, that hosts it, that moves it, that ministers to it, that, that, that creates the context for it. Man, folks, we're talking about things that we don't understand, I believe, but God wants us to. That's why we're covering this ground. God wants us to understand them. So it signifies prophetically the transference from the old covenant to the new covenant tabernacle, the New Testament church. You and me, members fitly joined. So priests were still ministering in the tabernacle, but doing so before an empty holy of holies. Have you ever thought about that? From that point on, there were people even in Jesus' day for crying out loud that were still conducting all the most, the ordinance that was that was called for under the ministry and mosaic tabernacle, but yet God wasn't even present in it. Have you ever thought about that? The ark was not there. They were ministering before an empty holy of holies. Could they? How could we, folks? There is such a prophetic symbolism. We could spend the next couple of weeks talking about how how that is a testament and a an example of religion. It, it has a form of godliness, but does not contain the power thereof. It denies it. Well, it, denying it means it don't contain it. Because if you deny it, you don't contain it. Well, guess what? The ark of the living God, which represents the actual physical presence of the living God, was it had left, the glory had departed long ago. But yet we've got people wanting to maintain and prop up and continue the religious ordinances of an old order that God was doing away with. And not just doing away with, but supplanting. That means a forceful replacement. And people wouldn't see it. And Jesus came to try to shine that light to people. And they could, they, I tell you, the religious people would not see it. Some of them did. Praise the Lord. Some of them did. Nicodemus and others did. See it. But a lot of them didn't. But boy, the sinners and the tax collectors and the, and the, and the, uh, prostitutes, boy, they saw it. <laughs> Cause they didn't have any relation to the old ways. They just saw the pre- the glory of the new and they're, they're on board. Hallelujah. And that's what Jesus said. I, the doc, I came to attend to the sick. So priests were still ministering in the tabernacle. But they're doing so before an empty holy of holies. Man, let that sink in. How many hundreds of years did they do that? The prophetic semblance or significance of this is the glory that had departed from the old and came to the new. Help me, Holy Ghost. Priests of the old order came into a new... But here's the wonderful thing about the, the, the David's tabernacle... 
priests of the old order, they knew the law, they knew the ordinance, they knew the things that God had commanded. They came, a lot of them came into the new order, and guess what? They brought all the younglings with them, and who didn't know nothing of the old order because it says the word of God wasn't even among the people and prophetic words were rare in that day because they weren't teaching it. But the old folks that did know it, some of them, they came into the new order and they brought the younglings with them and they taught them, praise God. They taught them. They all learned together. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Because the old folks had to learn something new. So now the last part of this is talking about, we talked about David's tabernacle. Now we're going to talk about restoring David's tabernacle. Restoring David's tabernacle. And there's a prophecy in Amos, and it's Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Don't turn turn there. You can turn there later and read this on your own. It says, in that day will I, and this is years and years and years and years and years and decades later. So evidently what happened is, is that what, what David had instituted, and after he had died, and things had, and then ungodly kings came in, guess what? There was a breach in the order. It's, it's like, it's like you... What is it they say? They say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, there's, there comes a time whenever, you know, apathy sets in and you, then ignorance prevails and then you fall back into the same doggone things again. And then the, you're back into, to the glory is no longer present with you. I mean, you're not ministering and, and hosting the presence of God. And so there's these breaches and it's all punctuated by ungodly kings. And then uh, among those breaches, there were times whenever we had godly kings that would come on, like Hezekiah, and godly kings like Josiah, and and, and people like that that would come in and read, and guess what? They would find the law again, they would find what it is, and every single one of those talked about, guess what? David's tabernacle. Do it, reinstituting worship like David had instituted originally. They would get it going again, things would wind back up again, and then here comes an ungodly king, and boom, here we go again. Over and over and over again. So here's Amos after several breaches of, of ungodly kings. And he says, in that day, this is a prophetic interest, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Isn't that interesting? So if he's saying I will raise up the tabernacle, that means it's fallen, hasn't it? That some we've lost something. And it says he's going to restore that. God says, I will raise that up and I will restore that and I will heal the breaches. Considering the context of Solomon's temple, because here's the deal, folks. At this point in time, Solomon's temple had already come, which was the the actual ordained hardcore temple after David's tabernacle, which was just a tent, because David wanted to make the temple. He said, why am I sitting here in cedar you know, lined and cedar posted and all this beautiful hardcore housing and God's out here in a tent. I want to build him something that there, such as there has never been built before to host the presence of the living God. That's David's heart. Wonderful. God tells him, it ain't you, David. As, as much as I love your heart, you're a man after my own heart, there are some reasons that are that you cannot be the one to physically do this. But guess what? Your seed will do it. And it was Solomon. His son. And so he, but, but here's the cool thing about God. He gave David all the instructions. Isn't that interesting? He honored David's heart so much that he would tell David what it was going to look like. He gave him the blueprints. And then he gave that to his son and said, you got to build it, son. I can't, David, God told me I can't build it. So he builds this and then we see a wonderful uh, emplacement of the ark into Solomon's temple. And it says that when the glory of God filled that place, they said the ministers couldn't even move in there for the, for the glory of God. They could not function. That's how, how strong the presence of God would fill that place there in Solomon's temple. So we know that things got instituted correctly for a while. Well, then there was a breach because of ungodly leadership. And then we see uh, raising back up under godly leadership and then breach. Raising back up and then breach. Raising back up and then breach. And so you've seen that happen multiple times. Then Amos gives this prophecy. And if you consider the prophecy in the context of Solomon's temple, which seems to represent the more permanent and significant house of God's presence, what does this prophecy mean then? What what else can it mean? Because Solomon's temple physically represented the, the more permanent dwelling that's ever been made. 
the one God had ordained. So why would Amos be saying, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David when the Solomon's temple was standing right there? So that means that Solomon's temple ain't where it at. It's at. It has nothing to do with the physical issue of the temple. So it has to do probably with the spiritual issue of the temple, with what it actually represented. It only means one thing to me, folks. It means that the raising, that raising this tabernacle represents the restoration and revival of true worship, lingering worship, continual worship, authentic worship. It's refreshing. It's singing. It's dwelling. It's not the house of worship or the literal tent. So it's not just the, the literal tent, which Solomon's temple would have represented whenever this prophecy was delivered. It's representing the 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 uh, prophetic and spiritual significance of what David's tabernacle represented, and that was a house. I mean, a a continual worship, the institute of the worship, the sacrifice of worship, true worship, continual worship, from the rising of the sun to the set setting, to to the place that it goes down, and it it never goes down because it's always shining somewhere, folks, always. So this revelation and establishment, you have to realize, you know, whenever David's tabernacle came into being, it came at the pinnacle of Israel's response to the Lord. And you need to go back to previous lessons that we've talked, because I don't have a whole lot of minutes to talk about that. But when David's tabernacle was born out of Israel's repentant heart after 20 years of them seeking and repenting and repenting and repenting. And Samuel tells them, if you truly want to repent, this is what you got to do. You remember this discussion? And he tells them the three things they've got to do. And then they, out of that, gets born at heart to restore the presence of God back in its rightful place. But that revelation came from a truly repentant heart. Okay, the revelation of the tabernacle of David. The third point of this is that the days when David pitched his tent were days of joy. There were days of gladness. There were days of shouting. There were days of dancing. And there were de- days for the desire but for one thing, and that was the manifest presence of God. And all of this under godly leadership. David, under godly leadership. Leadership that is after the heart of God. David's tabernacle was a place of continual worship. Folks, stay with me. We just have about eight more minutes, seven and a half more minutes. David's tabernacle was, and there's some absolutely, extremely substantive things we're going to talk about here. David's tabernacle was a place of continual worship. I want to remind you of that. The sacrifices... Or uh, it was a place where access and hosting of the presence of God occurred only by worship, not by animal sacrifice. Okay, I just got to say that over and over and over again. The sacrifices were those of worship, not flesh and blood. David's tabernacle was a foreshadowing of what is intended today. That we carry the presence of the living God and should host his presence with continual worship, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Hallelujah. Hebrews 13, 15, which is a New Testament, New Covenant scripture now. We're in the New Covenant. We're in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says to the Hebrews. Therefore, through him, let us continually, let us continually, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. I don't know about you, but when he talks about continually, that sounds like David's tabernacle. Romans 12, 1. I've got to tell you, folks, it's it, there. It's not that sacrifice was done away with. Animal sacrifice was done away with, but not. But he didn't do away with sacrifice in and of itself. He he listened to what Paul says to the Romans church. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And isn't it interesting in some translations? For this is your spiritual. Worship. Isn't it interesting? That sounds like it might have something to do with David's tabernacle now in the New Testament church. Because now the spiritual worship is to present your bodies as living sacrifices. No longer do you present animal, dead animals and dead things. You're presenting a living thing. And it's called your body. It's called your agenda. It's called your desires that you are constantly in a living sacrifice. I love what Pastor Dell said, and I'll never forget it for as long as I live. He said that, folks, it's a living sacrifice. So that means it wants to get down. You got to keep putting it back up there. It wants to crawl back down, so you got to keep putting it back up there. I love that. Isn't that the truth? 
Jesus said, you got to pick up your cross daily. Every day you need to present your body, man, as that sacrifice. And that says that's your spiritual worship. That's David's tabernacle. It's about worship. The mercy seat was the physical location of the presence of God upon the ark. And you can see this in Isaiah 37, 16. It iterates that very clearly. And it was once only accessed by one man per year, but was now placed in the midst of true and humble worship and adoration for all to see and experience. Under David's tabernacle, all had access now. And it now represents our free access. Hallelujah. Listen to these wonderful, wonderful New Testament verses. Hebrews 4.16. Here is my favorite book in the New Testament. You need to go and read Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews has so much deep revelation about Jesus, our priest, about our redemption, about, the, about these issues that we're talking about now. Hebrews is a deep book. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. What does this sound like? This sounds like those priests that are coming before the ark, but they're coming now because it's an open format. And I'm coming boldly before it, whereas it used to be this one person one time a year. Let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. What was the, where was the presence of God dwelling? In the mercy seat upon the ark. And find grace to help us in a time of need. Folks, he hasn't left them, his throne of mercy. We approach that throne of mercy and grace, and we do so boldly now because we have free access. And how does that happen? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, then, verses 19 through 20, listen to what this says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, everybody say confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Here we even see Paul using the actual example of the most holy place, the place in the old mosaic tabernacle. He's using old language here. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Did you know, folks, the Bible says that we are born of one spirit into one body. We are now literally a part of the the only curtain that there is between God and man, and that is the body of Jesus. The living curtain. The living curtain. You all see that? That's what it says. I mean, mean, is that not what the word says? It says, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. He's talking about the curtain that was before the Holy of Holies, separated the Holy of Holies from all the other things that were going on. The only separation there is between God and man is Jesus. And guess what? How do you access to the Father God? Through the curtain. Through Jesus, by being born into his body by the Spirit of God. That's what the New Testament says. That's what that means to me, folks. We're a part of the curtain, the living curtain. Hallelujah. Praise God. I got less than two minutes. We now know, folks, that Amos' prophecy was about a lasting establishment, not just something that would come and go, but it was a lasting thing, something that prophetically was being called forth in in certain dispensations, certainly now in the New Covenant, and some theologians believe actually... uh, 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 also, from a physical perspective, in the millennium. So there's multiplicit revelation about this that will take place because Jesus will come and establish his, real, his physical throne. And listen to what Acts... If you don't believe me, listen to the, the unction of James under the Holy Ghost in Acts. We're talking about a New Testament book here, 15, 13 through 18. After they had stopped speaking, James responded... And this is uh, uh, some of the apostles. They're talking with religious leaders and other people that are arguing back and forth about how whether or not the Gentiles are are really a part of the body now, whether or not they're under the whether or not they're allowed into the covenant, and the, whether or not they need to have uh, they need to go through the, all the mosaic things, the the law and stuff for circumcision and all this junk and the obeying the the order of those establishments that the glory had left long ago. And here James is putting a punctuation to some explanation that Paul had already brought out. And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have, or let's see here, after they had stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from a Gentile, from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Does this sound familiar? 
Its aim is prophecy. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. Here it is being quoted in the context of New Testament church, folks. So that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Everybody say, I'm called by his name. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I want to go almost dance a little bit. I'm called by his name. Hallelujah. I'm not left out. I'm not of the original covenant, but I'm under the covenant because of this right here. Hallelujah. Even all the Gentiles that, that are called by his name declares the Lord who does these things known from long ago. Here, James iterates Amos prophecy as an insight into God's plan for restoration of all people. Not just the Jews. Hallelujah. Both original covenant people and those that would be brought into the covenant through grace. And that's me. Hallelujah. That's you all sitting out here. I don't know if any of y'all are Jews. Maybe you are Jews and and if so, then you're covered under both covenants. But here it is. You know, James uses this scripture to determine that Jews and Gentiles both together were grafted in together. I love this, man. James just absolutely rocks the world with that. It's also here, the thing about the tabernacle of David in terms of the New Testament context is that it's also a place of unity. Not only of the Gentiles, it's a place that the Gentiles and the Jews are brought together in equal footing with God, the living God in relationship. A place where the old and the new come together. Movement of sanctification, right standing. The things, to me it represents not just people, but it represents the dispensational revelations that have come from, from my forefathers and my foremothers, from generations ago that God would bring through them, your forefathers, your foremothers, things that God would bring through them, that, that the truths of which have not died, they're eternal. And they're just as real today as they were whenever they were brought forth under that anointed inspiration back then. But guess what? The, the picture of David's tabernacle is a blending of the fullness of the things that might be figured as antiquated or old or outdated with the new and prophetic things that God is calling forth in these generations and days. That's the tabernacle of David for today. It's a place of unity. It's a place of restoration. I love what what Ephesians um, 2, 4, 14 says, and there's there's a song, and I've sang this song many times. He is our peace. Who has broken down every wall. He's made the two groups one. See, it's a place of unity. The tabernacle of David, prophetically, is what it represents. Amos prophecy said, and my time is up. Amos prophecy said God would raise the tabernacle again and he would heal the breaches thereof. James uses this scripture so well to determine that Jews and Gentiles were grafted together. It's a place of unity, a place where the old and new come together. And so what we do is, is we see that we combine the old and the things that, that are still true today that were brought forth from our forefathers and the inspiration and vision of the, of our forefathers and our elders combine this with the young folks that now have the imprinted DNA for a more continual and lingering worship that we saw so well, uh, exemplified in the tabernacle of David. And we get both of those together. And we have the fullness of the context for a real manifestation of God's presence. Hallelujah. Worship continues. You know, there are the young people today. And it's not just the young. It's not about youth in terms of age. It's, ta- it's youth in terms of the age of your heart. It's youth in terms of the age of your heart. What did Jesus say? Suffer not children to come. He said, anyone who's come to me just come like a child. Well, he's not talking about children just coming to him. He's talking about any of us, folks. Any of us. People, you can be old of body and young of heart. Amen? Amen? And that's what we've got to be. We've got to be young of heart. Hallelujah. Allow the DNA that God's put inside of us for a more meaningful and true worshipful experience to come through us. David's tabernacle, the last point, represents a prophetic and functional symbol of what he intended regarding worship. If you want to just put the thesis on it, that's it. It represents that. The entire study relates to this entire study that we spent these six weeks on. And we could spend six more weeks. But the entire study relates to how to fear, how to host, how to honor, how to handle, how to serve the presence of the living 
God. The strength of his anointing among us depends on our learning from these experiences and being obedient to the lessons therein. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's just uh, uh, pray and, and thank God for the word. Father, I can just think of one thing, and that is, oh, God, help us. And you're bringing help to us, oh, God. You're bringing light to us. God, I'm going to declare that David's heart is not alone in a desire for your presence. We desire your presence, oh, God. We desire your anointing. We desire your fullness. We desire to host the Almighty God in our midst. Hallelujah. In such a way that we can't even function, O oh God, in a physical manner. But God, we just, we know we've got lessons. We've got things that we've got to learn. And God, you've brought them through these experiences of the last, you know, six lessons, O oh God. Help us, O oh God, to learn these from this, Lord. Holy Ghost, just multiply revelation to us, Lord. When we sleep, just bring these things back to us, Holy Spirit. We give you permission to do that. We give you permission. We invite the light. We invite the light, oh God, to show us where we're going. Hallelujah. And we just declare, we honor, we reverence. We reverence you, Father. We reverence you, Jesus. We reverence you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are among us. You are within us. We are spirit first after the nature of our Father. Help us to understand that, oh God. Hallelujah. And we just give you all the glory and the honor in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.